Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. While Hans Georg Hoppreich will continue to take us through the Gospel of John today, he will concentrate on a very touching story of a woman who sinned and was facing execution by the Pharisees. What do we learn about the trap set for Jesus, and why was his reaction to the problem such a big surprise to the religious leaders? What do we learn about our problem with sin and God's willingness to forgive? Well, just stay tuned to find out more. Good morning. It's great to be with you again, and we rejoice in what the Lord has done for each and every one. It started with a look, an innocent look, without remediation or evil intent. But it was a short, slippery step from a look to lust into infidelity. Because the look eventually led to a touch. The touch then led to a kiss. And that kiss led to a forbidden intimacy of adultery. Where did the adultery lead? Not to a secret satisfaction, which never lasts anyway, but to a public humiliation. Not to a soft-lit afterglow, but to a glaring, potentially fatal aftermath. Are we talking about a fatal attraction? The rage of a jealous or spurned lover? No, the chapter, John chapter 8 in the Gospel of John pictures for us uh, the self-proclaimed guardians of righteousness setting up a sinful rendezvous to spring a trap. Now, this is the kind of setting John leads us into this morning. Not to catch the lovers necessarily. In fact, they use only one of the lovers, the woman whose tangled life they hope will ensnare the one they are after. The Pharisees, you see, are after a bigger game. The one who breaks their Sabbath with healings and claims to come from God. Jesus is their quarry. And this poor lost woman is only their means to string him up. Here is the setting. The setting is established for us in John chapter uh, 8 in verses 1 and 2 where we read Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, that morning is like any other Jerusalem morning. It is early, just as it may be early for us this morning, with the time change. The city is still in Damp with the dew as purple shadows fall among the temple pillars. Echoing through the temple are the words of Jesus, who in rabbinical fashion sits down, as all rabbis do, they sit down, they don't stand as I 
stand, they sit down to teach the gathered people. This is the setting. And then the attack comes. Suddenly the quietness of that sacred place is totally shattered and completely different. There is an interruption in this attack. In verse 3 we read, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious laws and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. The scribes and Pharisees, Israel's supposed spokesmen of God, are bent on destroying Jesus who poses a threat to their religious hierarchy. Jesus stops teaching. Jesus stares at the man whose voices have been honed on hate. A quick glance to at verse 6 reveals that they are acting out a plot that was has been rehearsed down to the last detail. A plot so insidious that they are willing to entrap and execute a woman in order to discredit the Lord Jesus. Now, what was the accusation? With them, they drag like a dog. They drag like a dog on a leash. Um, this heviled woman, hastily clothed, barefoot, and humiliated. And in verse 6, it says, This woman was caught in the very act of Adultery. Can you imagine this? Imagine a woman taken abruptly from the bedroom where she was some man's sexual object. Insensitively, she was dragged to the temple. It's hard for me to spell that out. I mean, it's beyond I can imagine. If that would happen here and today, I, don't, I think we all would run away. But that exactly happened here, where she now becomes this woman. She becomes a, a political object used to bait the trap set for Jesus. They dehumanize people. When we, treat, when we treat people as things, as objects, we dehumanize them and destroy something precious inside that is God-given, that cannot be given by a human being, but it is God-given. The scribes and Pharisees were not looking at this woman as a person, but as a thing, an instrument whereby they could formulate a charge against the Lord Jesus. They were using her as a man might use a worthless pawn in a chess game. To them, she had no name. Indeed, a no name. No personality. No heart. No feelings. No soul. She was simply a victim disposed to their strategy to corner Jesus into a checkmate. Whether you use people for your own pleasure or to prove your point, even a, a religious 
point, you are treating those people as things to be used instead of human beings to be loved. This is what God does. He loves us to the end. There is no interruption to it. This greatly dishonors the one in whose image they and we, we all are made. Dehumanizing people. Do you know what it means? And here is the question. They set the trap with a hair trigger precision. In verse 5, we read again now, in the law, the Moses command us to stone such women. What then do you say? What then do you say? The Greek um, text helps us to capture the emphasis by putting the personal pronoun at the beginning of the sentence. The sense is you now. What is your advice? They point fingers to Jesus. What is your advice? Clearly, they are trying to place the problem squarely to Jesus, on Jesus. Judaism, three gravest crimes are idolatry, murder, and adultery. They were all punishable by death. And the Mishnah, that is the Jewish codified law, states that the, penal the, the penalty for adultery is strangulation. And even the method of strangulation is laid down. Would you believe it? The man is to be enclosed in a dung up to his knees in order that no mark may be made. A soft towel set within a rough towel is to be placed around his neck for the punishment is God's punishment. Then one man draws in one direction and another in the, in the other direction until he be dead. I was reminded to the widow killing in Papua New Guinea. That's exactly what they do. When the husband dies, the uh, woman, the lady goes with their um, kids into the bush and they put just a bush rope around their neck and in each end they drag and they kill the woman. That's exactly what they do and what was they were asked to do according to the Mishnah, the Jewish codified law. The Mishnah repeats that death by stoning is the penalty for a girl who is engaged and who then commits adultery. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 22, it says Moses wrote that if the offense took place in a city, both adulterers were to be stoned publicly. Um, that's what happen, still happening in, in uh, many uh, countries when this happens, when adultery happens. Public stoning. So the Pharisees appeal to John 8, 5, to the law of Moses. Rises... And this raises an important question. Where in the world is the guilty man? The accusers testify that the woman was caught in the very act. So certainly they had equal opportunity to apprehend the man as well. As the pieces of this 
very dirty puzzle begins to fall in place, it seems like that the scribes and Pharisees did not just happen to happen by the bedroom window of these secret lovers. No, the incident smacks suspiciously of a premediated trap. Before they could land their trophy fish, so to speak, they had to first dip their little fish net out to get the, uh, the bait. Having caught her, they now hope to hook Jesus, the Lord Jesus, to speak on the barbs of their dilemma. If he says, yes, stone her, his compassion for people will be questioned and he will place himself in danger with the Romans. Can you imagine the kind of tensions that arose in that moment? For only the Roman government had the right to exercise capital punishment. However, if he says, no, release her, Jesus will be accused of not supporting the law of Moses, thus alienating himself from the Jews. Essentially, the, the, Pharisee are, is, the Pharisees are asking, what will it be, Jesus? Do you kill the woman or do you kill the law? Can you imagine the kind of tension Jesus was in? And here comes, thirdly, the answer. Between this rock and hard places, Jesus wasn't impatient. He wasn't just running ahead and, and, you know, taking his hands and being upset. No, we say Jesus totally at peace. For it is when we are at peace that our mind is set. Jesus stands firm, refusing to compromise either his principles or the person for whom those principles were given. They are here with a man, and they are saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote, to the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, as we read in John chapter 8, uh, verses 6 to 9, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground and they heard it. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst. Well now, the headline led us in the sand. I guess you expect me to come up with a secret now. Um which letters Jesus wrote in the sand? Do you expect me to come up with a secret? I don't know. I'm sorry to disappoint you with the right answer. What Jesus writes in the sand remains a mystery to this day. It just says here in verse 6, and that's the only fact I can say, because I want to be in accordance with Scripture, with, with the Word of God. I want, don't want to add some secret things that came up just now. No, it's not a secret. 
The Greek term used here is not a, the word normally used uh, for writing in the New Testament, which is krafo. Rather, it is the word katografo. This suggests that Jesus may have been listing in the sand the sins of the um, scribes and Pharisees in order to break their conscience. So he may have made, I don't know, it only suggests um, that he put, I don't know, one to ten or whatever, all those sins they just committed. In Job 13, 26, it says, For you write down bitter things against me and make me reap the sins of my youth. What Jesus says to this self-righteous, self-appointed judge and jury has echoed through the centuries. Deuteronomy 77 says, The hands of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall eliminate the evil from your midst. This declared that the witnesses were to be the first to stone the victim. So Jesus merely forces this legalists to go strictly by the law. What a challenge to the Pharisees and, and, and scribes that turned up here. It was a hammer. He hammered things out. And they knew what's happening. He makes only one qualification. And referring to Matthew 7, 1 to 5, they should take a look at the lock in their own eyes before they try to take the speck out of somebody else's. This was the advice to the man that dragged that woman in the temple. Now to the woman. Let's look what Jesus says to the woman. He's not speechless. But he gives also good advice. I wonder whether we also are ready to give such kind of good advice to those that are around us. It is as if an angel has passed between the helpless woman and the mob. There is. Completely silence. Shalom. Silence. Peace. Then the vigilant street retreat home, heads hung to in shame or at least in defeat. What a contrast she and Jesus make. The guilty and the guiltless. The adulteress and the advocate. The sinner and the savior. And straightening up, Jesus said to her in verse 10 to 11, Woman, where are they now? They're all gone. They ran away. Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord, no one. No one is left. They all ran away. And then the council, demonstrating that he is truly, he, Jesus, he is the center of what was happening. He is John starts his gospel. He says, full of grace and truth. 
That's what he writes in John 1.14, full of grace and truth. There are two pillars to love, grace and truth. Both need to match up together. You can't keep one from the other. Grace and truth. There are paired. They get. They need to stick together. Grace and he is not only has not just some kind of grace, but full of grace and truth. Jesus forgives the sinner, but without condoning the sin. And Jesus said in chapter 8, 11, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin no more. Jesus cares. That's what he's doing. Neither do I condemn sin, condemn you. Jesus also confronts sin no more. He spells out. He doesn't keep it out of what he was wanting to communicate. No, he spells it out. And that's, I think, for us humans, the harder bit to spell out. But that's the only, the sheer sign of love. You see, grace and truth, they match together. We need to keep that always in mind, grace and truth. If they do not match together, we may as well end to be a Pharisee. Drag other people according to our own righteousness to public or wherever. Condemn them. The only one supremely qualified to condemn her doesn't. In chapter 12, 47, if anyone hears my word, Jesus says, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the principle. Jesus wants to save both by love and truth. And he's righteous. And because he's righteous, he died on the cross for our sins. This is why we celebrate Good Friday this coming week. We celebrate not only Good Friday. We celebrate the rising up of Jesus. He is alive. He is no longer on the cross. He is alive. Wow. Now let's look lastly at the principles. From that passage, um, I can see there may be even more uh, truth to it emerge that we can apply in our relationship. You know, um, I like application, day-to-day -day application, for if we cannot apply the word God, it, it doesn't help us. So I like it. And I urge you, let's apply the word of God, not just hear it, but apply it to, our, to, to tomorrow, to this afternoon, to the days to come. Apply it. The first thing I can see, the practice of confronting wrong calls for humility and not pride. Jesus exhorts us in the Sermon on the Mount to look closely at our own lives before we look critically at the lives of others. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, According to the living, uh, New Living Translation, hypocrite! First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with a speck in your friend's eye. And Paul echoes that in Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, now, he's talking 
to each one of us, if we are saved by the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so his calling brethren is a neutral article, uh, is a neutral um, expression, brothers and sisters. Uh, even if a man, and here it's also a woman, <laughs> even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's the ground. That's the basis to do it. None of us is exempt from stumbling into sin. To paraphrase Paul's word, you might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. You too might need forgiveness. If we take the last glimmer of satisfaction in confronting someone else about their sin, this is an indication of pride. We need to prevent this. Or we will live to see it grow to overrun our lives. We would make ourselves to the standard which isn't right. We need to put Jesus in the center. Grace and truth in the center. And secondly, the first of all, the practice of confronting wrong calls for humility, not pride. And secondly, the privilege of condemning wrong is based on righteous, not righteousness, not knowledge. The privilege of condemning wrong is based on righteousness, not knowledge. In John 8, 7, it, Jesus says, Are you without sin? So that you feel free to cast the first stone? Or may I again quote Jesus in Matthew 7, 5, Are your eyes without locks so that you can see to take the specks out of the eyes of the others? Are you spiritual enough to restore one court in a trespass, as Paul says in Galatians 6.1? If you are not, then do not. Matthew 7 says also, one verses 1 to 2 and 2, do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And then the third principle, the principle of correcting wrong starts with forgiveness. Let's stand still in this. It starts. That is not the end, but it starts. And we need to start with forgiveness, not rebuke. That's a big challenge. And I must admit, I often put rebuke first before forgiveness. I don't know whether you can feel with me. Notice the pattern in the way Jesus deals with the guilty woman. John 8, 11 says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Can you imagine a world free from condemnation and judging? A world marked for forgiveness, not perfection. Because it's perfection. Well, we... Uh, made lots of interviews with our missionary candidates. And one of the things that really prevented many to do what they needed to do and called for was perfection. It was just a, a stumbling block. 
Perfection. I need to be perfect before I open my mouth. A world marked for forgiveness, not perfection. Just as the journey of a thousand kilometers begins with a first step, so the task of a world free from judging begins with one person willing to take the first step of compassion and forgiveness. May I dare to ask you this morning, and that's very important if we have listened to what the Lord Jesus said to that woman. Will you be that person? Will you be that person of compassion and forgiveness? I see some heads going down. I don't know what mark that may be. Compassion and forgiveness. That's another pair. Grace and truth. Compassion and forgiveness. Now, of course, it is so easy with a story like this in John A to feel superior to the Pharisees. You know, we knock them out. We don't like it. And to point fingers to the Pharisees. They did wrong. So easy, so easy. But the question is, are we really so different from the Pharisees? Suppose for a moment, and Mallory, I apologize to, I was so much reminded again to you. I'm fully supporting your ministry, your intention to help people in this kind of similar situation. Please do it. Do it with the blessing of the Lord and I hope also with the blessing of you as a church, as God's people. Suppose that she... This woman was a, a lesbian or a woman who had had an abortion or a drunk driver or a prostitute. That, of course, can put the pharisaical shoe on the other hand, on the other foot, can't it? On one of my legs and it may become a stumbling block, an accusation. A finger out. I, I am better than you. No grace and no love. Condemnation. No compassion or forgiveness. Sometimes with particular sins. Apparently when we came into um, Austria, we realized that um, I mean, that's only what we conceive, that, um, uh, you know, uh, sins against not paying taxes are more on a higher level uh, here in Austria than we have in, in, in Germany. So if somebody doesn't pay taxes and uh, it's pointed out by a judge, you know, they, they need to be replaced, you know, just chuck them out. Uh, so, you see, <laughs> there are kind of different levels of, of sin, sometimes particular sin. We Christians are a little more reluctant to drop our stones sometimes, a little more ready to condemn and a lot less glad to hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, neither. Do I condemn you? Jesus, though, who takes sin much more seriously than we do, responds to it differently from what most of us are used to. He does not condemn rejecting the repentant sinner. Jesus does neither 
condone or ignoring sin. You know what he does? He forgives. What an invitation this morning. He forgives. Whatever sin there is, he's able to forgive. He's able to help. He does not reject you. He loves you. He does not condone or ignore. But when we come and pay attention and say, yes, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. He will forgive. Why do we so easily judge others? That's a big question <laughs> that I ask myself. Look at James 4, 1, uh, 4 11 to 12. Um, there is a, a tendency. Don't speak evil against, e against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. And then Matthew seven twelve, Jesus shows how he wants to handle situations other, where others have sinned to, to do others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that. That's what Jesus says. That's the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophet. Jesus' goal is not to judge and condemn, condemn, but to restore, to save, to bring back what was broken, to restore back that uh, was broken up from, off from His grace, to bring people back to His grace, to forgive. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 7, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, he adds, and I am the worst of all of them. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example for his great patience with even the worst sinners then other then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life all honor and glory you know he bursts out um, in adoration and he points to the savior all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal King, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Wow. This is what happens when we are set free, when grace is abound in our lives, when He forgives us. This is exactly what happens. We can't do otherwise than praising the Lord Jesus. It opens our heart and mind, our mouth. Yes, Jesus tells the truth about our world. He says in John 7, 7, its deeds are evil. Jesus is honest about our darkness, but he comes to light our way to life. In John 8, 12, he says these famous words, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And Paul underlines it in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see the righteous part? You know, we need to point out to this part as well. Because you can say, you know, oh, hands, you're talking just about grace. Yes, I'm talking about grace. And grace is the more if we point out a sin. We can see grace even more so. And this is what Paul says. Do not fool yourself. Those 
who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. Mallory, it's so hard. I think we're all with you. It's so hard. Greedy people? No, in our church, we don't have any greedy people. Never had. Drunkards, no. Or, or, um, uh, or abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. You see, the grace comes in now. Once we were. He states it. He doesn't hide it. Once we were. Yes, each of one were lost, condemned. But then the grace of God came. He pulled us out of the miry clay and put our legs on the road of life. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the gospel in a nutshell. The saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus that pulls us out of sin and darkness, opens our heart and mind to follow him in his footsteps and tell others to follow him as well. Not us. We were once the same. Or we are still sinners. We need forgiveness still. Is there anybody here that doesn't need forgiveness? I can't see a hand. Whether up here nor down here. We need it still. We need to confess our sins to be forgiven. And that's a harder bit, you know, to confess. You know, this week, the Chancellor in Germany, she did a great thing. And I admire her because I know how hard it is. She asked over 80 million people in Germany for forgiveness. Do you know how hard it is? Have you ever heard? I mean, I'm not praising a lady or our chancellor up into heaven. That's not what I'm doing. Please do not misunderstand. But I want to point out how hard it is to confess. Yes, I'm wrong. I don't know what the rulers in this world do. Other rulers. They say, I'm right. I never do something wrong. We can see that in some countries in the world right now. Hundreds are killed because of that. Can you see the self-righteousness that is still happening today, now, here in this world? But then publicly confess, yes, I am wrong. And praise the Lord, whoever does it, they are forgiven. That's the only way. There's no other way. Even our hidden sins, so many things we do not see. You know, we are blind to, if, if, we, if we would turn up at the righteous God and he would just open up all the sins that are in our heart, I think, I don't know what would happen to me myself, you know. I think I would commit suicide. Because I can't stand up to God's righteousness. But praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He, Jesus, is able to forgive. So now, dear people of God, wherever you are. So now, let us spend our time. Praising God for his mercy instead of passing sentence on others. May God give us all. And I'm sitting in the same boat. I'm not sitting outside. I'm just sitting in the same boat. 
let's spend our time, the God-given time. I don't know how much time he gives you or me, but let's spend. That's the practical bit, you know, which I really like. The application bit. So now let us spend our time praising God for his mercy instead of passing sentence on others. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are utterly thankful to this great story we just looked at. Thank you that you are a loving Savior. We only can praise you. And it is beyond what we can say. Your grace is sufficient. Your love was poured out and still is poured out, out to bring people back in your kingdom. We thank you that this gospel is preached today from the rising of the sun till the going down of the same. We thank you that it is your gospel that still speaks to people's heart and conveys forgiveness because of your grace. Thank you for your are with us in the days to come to present others to that love of Christ that never fails. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your guidance, for your help, for you are gracious beyond we can cope with. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We bow before you and praise you. It's our desire to open our mouth even if we don't know how to do it because you are too big, too great, and yet you accept our praise and worship. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And thank you for being with us these days to come so that we are praising you even more, more for your mercies instead of passing on sentence on others. Thank you for blessing us. And thank you for standing with us, even in our struggles, even in our pains. You are not running away. You don't put your back on us, but your face. Thank you that you, your face is still shining and your grace is abound. We praise you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.